What's up, people? This is Jeff Staple from The Business of Hive. And as you might know, we are on a brief hiatus right now. We're gonna be back really soon. Season two begins any week now. And today, we are very excited to do our very first AMA, Ask Me Anything episode, where you, the listener, can ask anything you want. I've been fielding questions from the email account, questions at businessofhype.com. I've been fielding questions from Instagram and from Twitter. In fact, questions are still rolling in live right now on Twitter that I'll be fielding. Um, And it's awesome. I'm really excited to do this. Uh, This is sort of a give back to all the fans that have been listening to Business of Hype thus far. We really appreciate you supporting, listening in, telling a friend, subscribing, leaving a comment on iTunes, everything you could do to spread the word on Business of Hype. We really appreciate it. And so now we are opening up the mics, giving you guys the voice to answer, to ask any question you want, and we'll try to answer them as best I can. And in fact, I'm doing this pretty freestyle. So I I read some of the questions, but not really. I've sort of skimmed through a few of them, but I don't have answers formed. And um, you'll hear that I'm going to be figuring these answers out (laughs) as I hear them over the air. So uh, please be patient with me, but I'm going to try to answer everything as best to my ability from what I've learned on this show. And I've learned a ton on this show from some of our amazing guests and also from the 20 years experience that I've had in the industry of forming my own companies. So the first thing I wanted to do is introduce someone who is very special to the business of hype. Uh, He is the individual who is responsible for making the business of hype sound good and sound like something you'd actually want to tune into every single week. And he's also instrumental in the overall creative process of Business of Hype. Uh, And he's the unsung hero because he's with me in every recording session uh, behind a wall that uh, I can't really see or hear him, but he's there always helping out. And today I thought we'd bring him from behind the Iron Curtain, put him behind the mic, and you get to hear the voice of Mr. Daniel Nevetta. What's up, Dan? Hey, what's up, Jeff? How's it going, man? How does it feel to be uh, behind the behind the outside of the booth and into the booth? Uh, it feels pretty good. I'm not gonna overthink it, and I'm just gonna have a conversation with my buddy, and uh, you know, try to be wonderful at uh, presenting all these great questions from the lovely listeners of Business of Five. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I was thinking. If I ask the question and then answer the question, it's kind of awkward, right? So I felt like I needed another voice to come on and like at least throw the questions to me and then I can actually answer them. So your job in this is to sort of be as inquisitive as possible <laughs> and to like have the spirit and energy of a young inquisitive person, you know, trying to figure out their way through this entrepreneurial streetwear fashion hype beast world that we live in. Well, I like to think I know a little bit about all of those things, so hopefully it'll come together in a perfect storm here. Yeah, and you know, you yourself, you know, not to go into full shameless plug, but you yourself have a company. You've been doing it for many years. You've dealt with clients, designers, artists, brands, um, creatives, business, finance people. So you, you've, you've been around this block a couple times as well. Yeah, been there, still here. Hope to stay here for a long time. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I welcome your advice as well, um, and I'm sure the listeners would too. 
So let's get right into it. This is the AMA. This is our first one. Hopefully it will be not the last. Um, this should be exciting. It's very experimental. Uh, what's the first question you got for me? All right, so we have from at Jackie Lee 99. You have an idea for a brand, print out a few shirts. How do you get your product out there in an almost oversaturated field with everyone and their mother starting a new clothing brand every day? Yeah, so um, this is a good question. So when I started Staple 20 years ago, um, it was very difficult to start a brand and it was very difficult to get a brand out there. And when I say that, I mean like it was hard to actually make a shirt, you know, like you had an idea, you wanted to get it printed. The process of doing that was so manual, you know, you had to like shoot a screen, you know, like burn a silk screen, get emulsion and like get a dryer or find a factory that was willing to do it for you. And the minimums were really high, you know. Um, even getting the blank shirts, going to a label changer, all these things was very, very tedious. And nowadays, of course, you can just go to a website like Zazzle.com, Cafe Press. Amazon even has a merch department now where like they'll just print shirts on demand. So now a shirt can come out of a essentially like a large inkjet printer and you could have one shirt made like in a couple of hours, you know. So that's great, right? The ease of it is is really awesome. The problem now is, as Jackie Lee 99 has said, there's this huge influx of everyone and their mom who has an idea gets to put out a quote unquote brand, you know? Um, and so you have this like huge flooding of anywhere between very talented to not at all talented people just trying to get into the business. And so his question is, how do you get your product out there in an almost oversaturated field? Well, the other thing that has happened in the last 20 years since I started is the differences in getting a brand out there. When I started getting your brand out there literally meant going to Kinko's, making a pamphlet, a printed pamphlet, and then figuring out how to manually disseminate that postcard pamphlet or catalog to stores, cafes, bars. Like I'd leave stacks of staple postcards being like, call my home phone number to learn more about the brand, you know? Um, and now, of course, with social media, it's so easy to just get it out into the world, like from the comfort of your home instantly, you know. So I think that's that advantage is more powerful than the disadvantage of having all these people in the industry now. Yes, there is. Before I was competing with 24 other brands. Now, Jackie, you're comp you're competing with 24,000 other brands. But the advantage you have of being able to get it out there almost for free, sign up for Instagram, start an account, take a picture with your phone, boom, you're promoting your brand now. That is tenfold more advantageous than the amount of competition you have. Because out of those, and I'm just using these numbers as analogies, but out of those 24,000 brands that exist now versus the 24 that existed when I was around, there's not 23,900 great brands. There's still, if, if 20 years ago there was 20 great brands, now, out of those 24,000 brands, there's like 35 great brands or maybe 40 at most, right? So there's a lot more muck, but the high quality is still quite limited. I always like your anecdotal bits on the show. So what I hear you saying is, yes, there's a lot more access to it, but lean into the positives of the way things have evolved and be happy that 
it's easier to get yourself out there with less heavy lifting. Don't get caught behind, oh, well, there's so many other brands. Yeah. How am I going to compete? Just lean into it and be yourself and you know, promote. Exactly. Do you. Yeah. Don't worry about the thousands of other competitions. All right. Let's, uh, We're off to a good start. I think so, too. Okay. I'm going to try to keep moving. Okay. From John. Hello, Jeff. I'm sure you get asked all the time. How difficult is it to get a sneaker design through to Nike? People I've asked from freelance designers to sneaker store owners have told me it's basically impossible. Here he goes on to tell me the idea, which I don't think I'll share over the <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's not share his, his design. He presents his design concept, but I don't think we should share it. Um, okay, so how do you get a shoe done with Nike? I do get asked this often. Um, you know, with, like with a lot of things in life, there's different approaches on how to get something done, right? Whatever that quote unquote done is, there's many different approaches. You can be very aggressive about it and just be hardcore knocking down doors and just being like very, very resilient and, and, you know, on your grind about it. Or you can sort of take the sort of conservative approach and lean back and, and hope for good things to happen, right? I think, first of all, as a life lesson, you should do what you're comfortable doing. If you're a laid-back, conservative, quiet dude, and I tell you the way to get a shoe done with Nike is to fly to Beaverton, Oregon every day and ring the doorbell of Phil Knight until he answers you, like that's not in your comfort zone, so don't do that. But if you're the type of dude that's out there hustling and you have that in your DNA where you could go out there and like bang down doors and get it done, then by all means, do it that way. You know, Some people do get shoe collab deals done by being very aggressive, in my opinion, very annoying, but maybe to other people that's not annoying. That's just like, yo, he's on his grind. You know what I mean? It's, you could sort of look at it the same coin two ways. You know, My approach has been very conservative. So I've never asked a shoe brand, hey, let's do a collab. Like To me, it's kind of like, let's get to know each other, you know? And if we feel like we have similar ideas and synergies that vibe, then maybe we should do something together, you know? But it's always like, for me, my collaborations always start out with like, hey, wow, you think that way? Me too. And you think that way about this? Maybe we should do something together. Yeah, maybe we should. And it's very mutual, you know? Um, But again, that's my style. And um, I think the other thing to really understand is when people say you've done a collaboration with Nike or Puma or Timberland, right? That's actually a bit of a fallacy because Nike and all of these corporations are huge conglomerates that have 20,000, 50,000 employees, right? And their shareholders, which is like in the hundreds of thousands. So for someone to say Staple has collaborated with Nike is a bit of a fallacy because if you were to actually take a vote of all 50,000 people involved with Nike, they won't all, A, agree to doing the collab, or B, even know that it exists. Probably more than half of them don't even know that there's a collab going on, you know? Really what's happening is you are collaborating with a select small team, possibly sometimes anywhere between one and 12 people, that is like, we believe in this brand, we want to collaborate with this brand, right? Outside of that bubble of that 12-team person or sometimes one-team person, no one else knows that this is happening, right? So you're not collaborating with Nike, the brand. You're collaborating with these 12 people. And this has happened to me multiple times. In the midst of a collaborative project, that team quits, gets fired, gets transferred. They leave the, the project. 
and the whole thing dies. So it's not like some other person from Nike's like, hey, I'm ready to pick this up. Like, it's like, no, you have to start from the very beginning and, and start that conversation all over again. You know, so you're not collaborating with a brand. You're collaborating with people who represent that brand. And when those people change, then your project changes. Um, and so I say that because the relationship that you have with these people more so than the brand matters a lot. You could be the biggest Nike head in the world, own lots of Nikes, know everything about the history of the brand, and for all intents and purposes, you should be crowned like the partner of the year for Nike because of all you know or own or or you know have knowledge on. But the dude that calls the shots on a collab doesn't like you for whatever reason. Guess what? You ain't getting a collab. You know, versus you could not own a pair of Nikes. Right, never have bought a pair of Nikes in your life, but this team really likes you for whatever reason. Guess what? You're getting a shoe. That's how it works, you know. Well, I don't know anybody who doesn't own a pair of Nikes, but um, <laughs> but I guess just to take John's question a little bit further, how do you meet those people? Then, how do you connect with those people who are in charge of? Collabs. Are, is there any strategy that a guy like John or a young designer can employ? Um, you know, not, yeah. not uh, ringing Phil Knight's doorbell, but how do you get in touch with the guy who designs the Air Max 270? Yeah, well, I'll, get, I'll tell you the story of how I connected with Nike. I was at the time um, the art director of a magazine called The Fader Magazine. I was designing The Fader. And as a designer of The Fader Magazine, I was fortunate where the publisher said like, Hey, Jeff, if you have stories you want to contribute, you can pitch them and maybe we'll do the story, right? So I wanted to, this is, I'm dating myself, but this is 1998, okay? In 98, if you think back to sneaker culture, it wasn't a thing for all intents and purposes, right? There was no sneaker heads, no sneaker culture, no lineup culture. It was very, very niche, you know? And uh, I was a collector of shoes since the sixth grade, but I was always in outcasts and an anomaly. There was no one that understood what I was, why I was spending so much on shoes. And at the time in 98, Nike in Japan was releasing shoes in limited quantities. Ooh, <laughs> wow. Yeah, they were releasing shoes in limited, like 50 pairs at a time. Like, why? Doesn't make any sense. The world didn't understand this. And some people who were into sneakers in America were catching wind of this and were having friends, what's called parallel importing them into America for extra on top of the retail price. I'm basically describing the whole resale culture that happens today, day in and day out. But back then it was like a true anomaly. And so I pitched to the publishers of Fader. I said, hey, I want to fly to Japan. And I want you to pay for it. And I want to interview Nike Japan and find out why they're doing this. Why is a multi-billion dollar corporation making 50 pairs of this shoe? It sells out right away. And then they don't make more. Why are they doing that, right? Again, this sounds so naive because nowadays it's like, of course, they're, they're trying to create hype. But back then, it was pre all this shit. So it was like, why are they doing this? The fader guy said like, cool, this story sounds interesting. We're going to send you out to Japan. So I went out to Japan, landed in Tokyo with no connections whatsoever. I literally didn't know where Nike was, knew no one at Nike, and just hit the ground running like a freaking private investigator. I went to stores and I was I went to stores that carried Nike and I was like, who's your salesperson? Give me their phone number. And it'd be like the lowest guy on the totem pole. And then just work my way up. 
till after a few days, I found the one guy who was in charge of deciding we're going to make this shoe. We're going to make 50 of them and sell them in one shop. I met that one guy, right? And I, he was down to do the interview. And he, I was like, all right, I want to know why. And he's like, uh, because I'm not sure if they'll sell well or not. <laughs> it was like the most innocent, like, I, I don't know if they'll do well. <laughs> like, that's why we're making so little. <laughs> yeah, and then I was like, why do you sell them in, in such limited stores? Why? Because the big stores don't want them. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's how I, that's how I connected with them. And then, um, you know, in the course of that interview, uh, you know, I told them a little bit about myself and at the time I staple, my clothing brand was two years old, right? I started in 97. I was a graphic designer and I was a big shoe head. So the guy was like, wait a second, you have this cool t-shirt sort of like burgeoning street line. You are a designer and you love sneakers. We should be working together. And I was like, yeah, we should fucking be working together. He's like, all right. He's like, I'm going to try to arrange for you to go out to Beaverton now and meet people at headquarters. So that's how I met them. But the moral of the story there is, I think while, John, you might not be the art director of the fader and have these ins, I think the moral of the story here is that um, I didn't do this whole trip with the hope of getting a collab sneaker. You know, I went to do work. And by by... The result of that hustle and doing that work, good things happen. You know, I never in my dreams thought that I might be able to get a trip out of Beaverton out of this. That's like Wizard of Oz shit, going to Beaverton back then, you know, and it still is. Um, but that story can apply to anything. You could be working at a bar. You could be working at a mall, whatever. Like you can get this in. But I think it's more about the lesson of valuing the work that you do and create a position where or put yourself in a position where when that chance meeting happens where someone from Nike or a brand that you want to work with notices you that they're like oh shit you do a b and c yo we need to be working together it's like okay let's do this you know but and again this is my this is my sort of philosophy i think if you go around every day thinking like who do i need to talk to to get a shoe done right and you just constantly have the mentality when you do meet that person they're going to be like why the fuck should you get a shoe You've spent the last 365 days asking people to do shoes, but you actually haven't done anything else to warrant why you should have a shoe. So my advice here is the best way to get a Nike deal is to try to not get a Nike deal. Like just do you and don't even worry about it. And if, if you have the lens that is obviously invested in sneaker culture, sport, lifestyle, fashion, all the things that Nike cares about, You'll, you'll probably get noticed after a while. And now because of social media, they can notice you a lot easier. You know, if you just tag them on the cool shit that you're doing, someone, I guarantee you, someone at Nike will see. Yeah, cool. Great advice. I think I'm a huge proponent of doing before you expect anyone to give you something, you know? Yeah. Just continuing to create when you feel like no one's looking so that that way when you do meet that person, you have a body catalog. Yeah. I think, you know, uh, one of the things that I hear a lot of it, from the haters is like, oh, Jeff put a pigeon on the shoe and then he made history. And since then, he's just been riding on this shit. Like, that's easy, right? I agree. You can encapsulate that and think that that's easy. But when Nike said, you get to put a pigeon on a shoe, why didn't they do that to you? Like, why didn't they ask you to put an animal on a shoe? 
it's because of the work that I did prior to that, that Nike even said, hey, let's do something together, right? So young people who are starting out in this industry often neglect all of that invisible back work that got no glory whatsoever, but was good enough that the powers that be that Nike said, like this body of work that he did from 97 on, or even before that is like impressive, dope, doesn't really get shine, whatever, but it shows that he has good work ethic. He can deliver and he has some ideas. Let's try to give him a shoe. And then boom, the pigeon happened, history happened, and then it excelled from there. But it's too easy to just discount it and be like, yeah, you put a pigeon on a shoe. You, of course, you know, like, of course you're, you've made it. But nah, it was like there's a lot of behind the scenes shit that went on, you know. Yeah, man. And I think it's cool for you to acknowledge the, the dissent that we hear sometimes from these kids, people, adults, whomever, yeah. who just feel like they're free to say whatever it is that they want to say. Yeah. You know, with nothing really to back it up. Right. It's interesting for people to Monday morning quarterback some shit. Mm -hmm. Or it's also interesting, you know, how people will say a bunch of negative shit on social. Yeah. Well, but, I, it's a free country, so they're allowed to. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but I, I take it all with a grain of salt. In fact, I, it's secretly like my fuel. Like when I honestly, when I hear someone on social like say some bullshit like that, you know, like, oh, you know, all he is is one thing, one shoe. I take that as a challenge, actually. I take that as a challenge at like, wow, even though I think I'm out there promoting my body of work and what it is that I do, this kid still thinks all I ever did was one shoe. I'm not doing a good enough job at showcasing everything that I've done. I'm failing because he's not understanding everything that I've done. You know, like literally all I'd have to do to shut him up is to reply to him with my website. Like, I just need to hit reply and be like, stapledesign.com. And then it's like, now shut up, right? But I'm not doing a good enough job at that, so I need to up my game. And that's how I take those challenges when I see that. I'm humbled by that answer because I'm always trying to challenge myself to find those types of responses um, when I get critical feedback. But I think that it's really, uh, more than anything, it's a good lesson to other people that people are going to try and uh, sort of strike you down. Yeah. yeah, and it's how you answer that negativity it sets the leaders apart from the followers so i'm I'm totally into it man Thanks. who's next from at b imperial where can someone start to learn operations and financials of business in terms of running a hype business i.e storefront clothing brand creative studio is the only way to learn trial by fire going to school or taking a community college class so b imperial um, first, I think when you say hype business, I don't think you should narrow yourself to that field. I think any hype business before it is a hype business is a business, you know? So if you're trying to open up, I'm just going to make this up. Let's say you're trying to open up a sneaker store that sells exclusive kicks. That 99% of the business principles that go into that are the same as if you're trying to open a laundromat or a hardware store. You know, like the math is the same. The P&Ls, which is called profits and losses, uh, are the same. You have to balance the books the same. You have to pay taxes the same. You have to pay employees, rent. All of that stuff is the same. 99% is the same. That 1% 
hardware stores selling nuts and bolts, you're selling Nikes. That's the only difference. But other than that, it's the same thing. So I would say if you want to learn how to run a hype business, you should actually learn how to run a business. And learning how to run a business, fortunately, you can do by taking a lot of classes, both at a community college, a regular business school, or even online at this point. Biz the act of running a business is very mathematical. Most of it is... Um, most of it is very black and white. It's math. You're either basically doing it right or doing it wrong. That's the bulk of how to run a business, right? And, you know, I have, a, I, I have people that work with me on the financial side, and I, I trust them and everything, and they're very smart people. But oftentimes what they tell me is like, you want to know the secret to running a successful business, Jeff? You want to know? I was like, yes, please tell me. Make more money than you spend. <laughs> Ta-da! It's like, oh yeah, because most businesses that fail spend more money than they make, and that's why they fail. It's like very simple mathematics, right? So outside of that mathematical side now, now you have the artistry of the business, which is what's the name of your business? What logo is it going to be? What kind of tile are you going to put in the bathroom and stuff like that? But if all of those decisions are informed by make more money than you spend, you will be in good shape. You know, I'll give you one example. Let's say you, you want to open up an e-commerce site for your business, right? Should I use Yahoo? Should I use Big Cartel? Should I use Shopify? Should I use Magento? There's like all these different tiers of e-commerce that you can use. Some are free and some cost thousands of dollars a month, right? Which one should you use? Well, if you base it off of I think I'm going to make this much money every month. Don't spend more than that. <laughs> you know, spend way less than that and be conservative. And you should be good. And then when you make more money, you can maybe upgrade. That's just one example, you know. Um, so I think from a business standpoint, if you just look at it very, very sort of common sensibly and sort of just use that mantra, make more money than you, than you spend, you will be in good shape. All right. Who's next? All right, from Stuart Holman, Charlottesville. <laughs> this looks like a long one, yeah. But go ahead. Okay. I'm writing to you in hopes that you will read this and can possibly share some advice to get me over the hump. I have passion and ideas. I just don't know where to start. You are a huge inspiration to me. I've been reading you and your businesses for a long time, two th since 2009, actually. I just finished listening to the Hype Beast Radio podcast where they interviewed you and have listened to all of the Business of Hype podcasts. Each episode has helped me think through a lot of my own questions and obstacles to help me along the way, and I felt compelled to email you. Thanks, Stuart. I'm a 32-year-old living in Charlottesville, Virginia. I have a wife and two kids, a three-year-old boy and an eight-month-old daughter. I'm a family man, and I juggle three side hustles on top of my nine-to-five. I am an urban portraiture streetwear photographer. I host two podcasts, and I run a website. Amazing. I'm a full-time DevOps engineer, which takes up most, if not all, of my days. So at night, from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., I have my time when I'm not needed by anyone, and I can work on building my brand slash company, S-T-U-D-I-G-S, which could be Stooges or Studigs. Yep, Okay. I've been in IT for almost nine years, and this is not the area for me. It just pays the bills. To be honest, I feel stuck. I listen to your podcast, Hypebeast Radio, 
read interview after interview about how these creatives took the leap and started something they were passionate about and made it a business. Super inspirational. I love these stories. That is exactly why I wanted to do my interviews because talking about those things really gets my creative juices flowing, trying to figure it out more and more for myself. I want to bring the culture of streetwear to Charlottesville. This is a university town where young kids live year-round. I interview a lot of brands and talk to even more about how they have trouble finding places to sell their clothes. My dream is to give that to them, to have a place for them to put their clothes in a window, but to also have a spot to throw pop-up shops to introduce new brands that are from out of town, a place for private listening parties for new albums, a place to host creative workshops, you name it. A place that I can also run my photography and podcasts out of. I'm a people person, and the idea of chatting it up with customers daily walking through my doors is exciting to me. To provide a space like this for my community would make me a happy man. Jeff, I would love to hear some advice. Your veteran status in this area is remarkable, and a few words of wisdom would really go a long way. None of my friends get this. My family is kind of lost when I mention what I want to do, and my ideas go through one ear and out the other. Charlottesville does not have anything like this. When I think about how I'm going to pay rent on a shop and keep up with my mortgage, I get bogged down with doubt. I just don't know where to start. Thank you for taking the time to read this, Jeff. I hope to hear from you. If not, at least I was able to get this in an email and try to reach you. Thank you for your continuous inspiration. I look forward to the next episode. Man. Thanks a lot, Stuart. That was, that was a lot that, that you told us, and I'm glad you shared your personal um, story with us. Stuart, I hope I, I hope I did you justice there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's see. Uh, where do I begin? Okay. I think a lot of what you're going through is what I went through as well. Um, you're working multiple jobs, juggling different sources of income, and you are trying to do the thing that you love in that off time. And I went through the same thing. There was a point where I was going to school and I had, let me count one. No, I was a full-time student in college and I had two jobs. So after school at like 4 p.m., I'd go to a job from 5 to 8 p.m. It was at a design studio. And then at the night shift from midnight to 3 a.m., I worked at sort of like a bootleg Kinko's like a fake Kinko's, right? Like a 24 hour copy shop. And so I worked there from till three and then I'd go home and then I'd have to be at school the next day by noon, but somewhere between 3 a.m. and noon, I would try to work on staple and sleep, right? And eat. And I remember doing that for nine straight months of like graveyard shift, work on staple, try to be somewhat coherent during school, do another job, repeat, rinse, repeat. And it was killing me. And after nine months, I said to myself, like, man, there is only so much longer I'm going to be able to do this. And I saved up money, tried to save up as much money as possible. And uh, one day as I was going home, I was skating home one night from the 3 a.m. graveyard shift. And I got into an accident on the street, right on Broadway in Soho, that like almost killed me. Like a car almost hit me. And it was at that point that I was like, okay, it was a, it was a wake up call for me to be like, I really need to make a decision right now. And it was that day that I literally put in my resignation for all the jobs 
And I actually decided to quit school at that point too and drop out and just do staple full time. So Stuart, I don't know if you play poker or if you gamble, but that move is called going all in. It's taking all of your chips and saying like, I'm betting the house on this. Now, at the time, I was 21 years old. I had no wife, I had no kids, I had no home, I had no mortgage. You're telling me that you have a family, you have an entire support system that you have to deal with. So I can't knowingly say you should follow my advice on this, right? You have to assess the situation that you're in and see what you have to do in order to follow your dreams, but also keep the lights on in your home. All right, so the second part is the thing that you're trying to build sounds a lot like read space. No, dis- no disrespect, that's cool. Like, I think you should do that. And a lot of the, and I only say that because a lot of the, the motives that you're trying to bring about are exactly the reasons why I started read space. Um, so more power to you, you should do it. I go back to the previous question about business. Make more money than you spend, right? So if you start, all of the ideas you said are great. I have no critique on the ideas that you said. But now, have you looked into real estate rent? How much space do you need to do this, right? What are going to be your expenditures every month? This means how much are you going to be spending every month? How many employees will you need? What will the electricity bill look like? What will the water bill look like, right? Um, All of these things, try to get them down on a paper of like all the money that's going to go out every month. Then in another column, how much money can I make from this every month? Can I rent it out to sponsors? Can I get brands? How much can I sell in shoes? If I host a podcast, can I get an advertiser for that podcast? How much money can I realistically make out of this? And if that number is less than the expenditure number, I don't suggest you do this, especially because you have a family. And in fact, even if you break even, because you have to feed your family and your wife, you're going to be in a shit ton of trouble if you go into this. The only way you're going to be able to do this successfully for any amount of time is if you make more than you spend. And I don't know what the real estate is like in Charlottesville, but you have to be making probably three to four times what your expenditures are to be able to feed your family out of this, you know? Um, And if you can't, then either the timing is not right or you need to figure out what's known as a cash cow, right? So maybe you need to add some element into your business that is like the money maker, you know what I mean? Or maybe you need to find a place that is even cheaper than Charlottesville in order to do this business out of. There's many ways you could you can crunch the numbers so that you get your expenses down and your profits up. And then I think even from there, even at that point when you've said, okay, I've got, basically what I'm asking you to do is make a business plan. Even after you've made this business plan and you've shown confidently that I can conservatively make more money than I spend, you're not done yet. Because now you might not have enough money to start the business. But at least now with this business plan, you can get a loan, go to a bank, small business loan, ask a friend or an angel investor, or I don't highly suggest this, but this is the way I did it. You can max out a shit ton of credit cards, right? And that's the way I did it. I put myself into crazy credit card debt. The number actually was $180,000, all spread out over about nine different credit cards, maxing all of them out. Because I was confident that I could pay it back. And I didn't even write this business plan. I'm so stupid 
that I just used my gut. Like my gut told me that I can do this. But that's the wrong, don't do it that way. Put it down on paper, do the math, and feel confident that like, all right, I'm gonna take out this credit card, do the cash advance of whatever, $10,000, $20,000, and I'm gonna put, put it down on the lease on this rent because I'm confident that I can make this. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think that to add to that, if I may, yes. one of the things that I heard you say actually in our friendship, uh, you have this thing where you say like, make money while you sleep. Like if, if, uh, if Stuart can figure out when you mention a cash cow, is there some product that, or service that, you know, he can supplement some of his income by doing something that may not be so glamorous, but is a moneymaker while he sleeps, that could help offset some of the costs. That's great advice. What you don't want to do is get into a situation, Stuart, where like, let's say you're busting your ass and you're working 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. You're working really hard. You're busting your ass. But at 9.01, when you go home and finally see your family and sleep and you stop making money, that's a really tough business because that means the money doesn't come into the business unless you're awake doing it. Like, not to toot my own horn, but I'm doing this podcast right now and my business is making money while I'm doing this podcast. You can't really have a business where once you step away from the business, it stops generating income. That's not a business. That's a hobby. You know, so like you've really got to figure out like what Dan said, like that cash cow that like, you know, whether it's, you know, for me, it was a T-shirt and an e-commerce site. You know, I'm, I'm sort of very much simplifying it. But with a T-shirt that has a pigeon on it and an e-commerce site, I'm sleeping. And when I wake up, I have orders from Tokyo, Japan. Because while they're awake, they're buying staple shirts, you know? Yeah, I will, I will say one other idea that I've seen work, especially here in Brooklyn, is, is communal spaces where one person takes the plunge on the lease and within that space, a certain amount of square footage is allocated to either, if he wants to have this collaborative space, he could be you know, offering up a certain amount of square footage to X brand yeah. who's going to pay for part of it and maybe cumulatively he can um, sort of hit his mark of what his monthly rent is. Because he lowers his expenses. Exactly. And, and also, um, you know, essentially because he's taking the responsibility into his own name, yeah. Yeah. he should be mindful of marking up some of that space to offset some of his costs as well. So instead of $2,000 a month on him, if he can collectively get $1,800 from other companies, then he's really only out of pocketing $200. And you mentioned having something in the space that could also make money. We see in New York that coffee bars mm -hmm. are small footprints within a space, but it keeps people coming into the store. And while yeah. they're standing there sipping their coffee, they're looking at other uh, product. So yeah. you had mentioned sponsors, but I feel like that's another way to approach a right. space. Stuart, you mentioned here that like you wanted to do like clothing in a window, pop-up shops, um, album release parties, creative workshops. I mean, you know, a gallery you mentioned. Like, I don't know if you're actually the expert in all of these things, but maybe that's where you take Dan's advice here and you work with like, hey, local gallery, do you want to contribute to this? Hey, local record label, do you want to contribute to this? You know, and, and make this the hub for your listening parties. And to Dan's point, if your rent's like, you know, we're just using fake numbers, but if your rent's $2,000 and you get four partners to chip in 500 bucks each, that's not a lot of exposure for each of these people, but your rent's now covered. 
and everything you make on top of that is gravy. Good idea. All right, let's go to the next question. From Tom Griffiths. Really looking forward to season two of The Business of Hype. It's one of my favorite podcasts spelled in the British way with the O-U. Yes. Um, if you run the AMA episode, I'd love... Which we are. <laughs> this is it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the growth of street culture in China, beyond just Shanghai and Beijing, but into cities like Chengdu. Is that correct? Yes. It's like the top five largest city. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> especially with the rise of more, quote-unquote, alternative culture with the likes of Higher Brothers and the, popula and the popularity of Yoho. Yeah. Um, so you're asking about China. China is a, a special place for me. I get to go there you know, at least once a year, if not more. Um, and I'm of Chinese descent, so I take particular interest in how street culture is burgeoning in that, in that region. Um, and it's just growing lightning fast. Like every year that I go there, it's exposed more and more. My concern is that the Chinese, and I can say this because I'm Chinese, are a very like surface materialistic people when it comes to absorbing a subculture. So when they get into something like skateboarding or high fashion, you know, they don't really dig deep often on like, who is Donatella Versace and where does she come from and what is her roots? Like they just want the Versace logo really big, you know? And when it comes to streetwear, it's like, yeah, Supreme logo on the chest. Who's James Jebbia? I don't know. I don't give a fuck. Like, I just give me the Supreme logo, you know? And, you know, I shouldn't just marginalize and say that's Chinese because I think a lot of kids in street culture don't really care about the surface or go beyond the surface, you know? And what I'm trying to do... Um, in my free time. <laughs> uh, no, what I'm trying to do when I go to China is because I'm Chinese and I think they might listen to me like one iota more because I'm of their ilk is try to explain to them that like I'm not just trying to shill a hot sneaker or a hot pair of sunglasses or a hoodie to them, but there is a deep story behind all of this stuff. And that's what makes street culture significantly different than The Gap or Abercrombie & Fitch. Like, Abercrombie & Fitch has a bird on a hoodie. You can buy that hoodie with an eagle on it, right? Or whatever animals on it. And it's way cheaper. And honestly, if you touch it, it might feel pretty much the same. So why are you going to buy this one that has a pigeon on it? The only reason why you should buy it is if you understand the story and the DNA behind why that pigeon was birthed onto a hoodie. And if you don't understand that, I don't actually understand why you should buy that you should just go to uniqlo and buy the blank version you know um so i i really not only am, am i there to promote the brand but i'm really there to promote the cultural storytelling aspect of why the heck i'm doing this for 20 plus years you know um and and china's really um interesting because of the obviously the population that's there the amount of people and how the middle class is exploding there, you know, so from an opportunity standpoint, there's huge opportunity for any brand and, and any business out there. It's pretty much the future. Uh, it's the present, but it's also the future of sort of just commerce, right? So um, there is definitely like a very capitalistic reason why I'm out in China and doing these business deals and having these meetings. But as I mentioned, there's something very like cerebral about what I'm trying to do as well, because I don't think you can build a culture off of materialism out there. Like it's going to be a house of cards that falls one day. 
if I can lay a foundation for the culture, then we have something really, really special. Great question, Tom. All right. Uh, so here we go from at skinny. Jeff, is there anything you regret doing or regret not doing in your path of getting to the point where you are today? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the thing that I often reflect on that I wish I had done earlier was bring a team together and, and share the work that I was handling. You know, I started the brand by myself without partners and I'm a control freak by nature. And I think a lot of creatives are control freaks because they really care about the product that they're putting out. And the mistake that's made is that you start by doing everything. And as the business starts to grow, you feel like you can continue to do everything. And then it comes to the point where like, and if your business grows, you get to the point where you're sort of hitting the, the maximum capacity of the work that you're able to do. But you know you should bring someone on, but you don't because you don't want to relinquish control. And what happens is then all of the work starts to suffer, you know. Um, and I wished that I brought in people earlier for the stuff that A, I didn't like to do and B, I was bad at doing, which in particular was finances, as most creatives are bad at. Um, I should have brought someone in earlier for like money management. And, you know, it, it's to be honest, doing a show like the business of hype is really like my calling card to tell young people today that like, don't follow the footsteps that I did. Don't max out 10 credit cards. Don't almost go to bankruptcy. You know, don't like not pay your bills because you're not feeling this person anymore. Like, no, you got to like handle your business. And someone who's smarter from a financial and business savvy standpoint would have educated me on that early on instead of me making the mistake. Um, but in general, as a sort of larger answer, I just wish I brought someone on. So vice versa, if you're a business person and you want to start a business and you think you could hop on Adobe Illustrator and start cranking out logos, like maybe you should bring on a designer to help you do that, you know, so that you're not trying to figure out Photoshop filters at 2 a.m. when you should be looking at the checkbook, right? So it works both ways. Um, build your team and I think, you know, like, you're going to get more by giving up a portion of whatever, whether it's money, salary, equity. It might feel painful at first, but you're going to reap the benefits faster. Yeah, totally. Um, I also found that bringing on people who are better than you at certain things absolutely is, is one of the best strategies. And in growing my business the same way, I wished that I had done that earlier. Yep. Um, but speaking to your point of maxing out a ton of credit cards, that was something in my business of filmmaking and production, I did not want to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so I always felt like I watched companies disappearing, which I felt like, to your earlier point, were spending more than they were taking in. Yeah. And I always wanted to be reasonable about making sure that there, I wasn't overspending. Mm -hmm. We didn't take investors. We didn't have any early investors. I had a partner, but... Um, you know, it was just important to me to make sure that we weren't overextending ourselves. Right. Um, There's a saying, and I don't know if it's 100% accurate, but um, it goes like, don't ever be the smartest person in the room. And if you are, get new people in that room. Or move to another room. Yeah, yeah. right. And I don't know if that's always true, but I do agree with it in theory. Like, if you're the smartest person in every aspect of your business, there's probably something wrong there. <laughs> yeah, Totally. Uh, it's a hard lesson to learn and to relinquish, but I think that that's the only way to grow. Like yeah. I hit a plateau personally as a business owner and mm -hmm. then realized that 
to grow beyond where I was, I needed to involve other people. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, all right, so this is at about to go Sam, which really looks like about to orgasm. <laughs> right. But I digress. Jeff, what was the most surprising or unexpected issue you ran into as you first began to build your brand? Um, the most surprising thing, it's not really an issue, but I thought that, well, I'll tell you, like when I started my brand, um, when I saw people that I didn't know were staple, I thought that was like the coolest fucking thing on earth, you know? And like, I got goosebumps when like, cause you know, the first few people who wore staple were all my homies that I was just giving shirts to. So like, I'd see them wearing staple, but then like, I remember the first time I saw someone who I didn't know wearing staple and like my jaw like hit the street. I was like, I don't know who he is. And he bought a staple shirt. That's amazing. You know? And this was in 1997, 21 years ago of me starting a brand. And I thought that that feeling has to go away. Like, but it hasn't. <laughs> like to this day in 2018, when I see some random person wearing staple, I'm like still shocked that like a guy who doesn't know who I am gave me money for something that I made. That's like the weirdest thing on earth. And now I start to think like, man, I wonder... Like when Ralph Lauren sees someone wearing a polo shirt, does he still get stoked? No. <laughs> no, he must. I want to I wanna think that he still gets goosebumps when he sees someone wearing a polo shirt. Um, but that just shows that like maybe this is something that's like indicatively specific about street culture um, and the family that it creates and sort of the ecosystem. But like I've never tired of, of like that satisfaction of seeing someone enjoy, you know, what I've created. Cool. Um... Okay, this one's from at Amos V. Quack, I believe. Uh, Jeff, can you talk about sacrifices you've had to make as an entrepreneur? Sleep, family time, etc., and generally the lifestyle that the cameras don't capture. Um, yeah, there's a lot of sacrifices that need to be made. Um, you mentioned a family. I don't have a family, so that's number Sacrifice one. one. <laughs> Sacrifice one, I don't have a family. Uh, I have a, an amazing wife, um, but the wife that I chose had to, had to make the decision mutually that we decided we're not going to have a family. Our family is staple. Our family is you guys. All the thousands of people listening, like that's my family, and we've made that decision, um, so we're not having kids. Um, another sacrifice like I just went on a quote unquote vacation for eight days during that eight day quote unquote vacation. I took five conference calls, two FaceTime meetings, answered emails, was on Slack, had to make executive decisions throughout. There's no vacation, right? There's like a trip where, you know, your loved ones can be on a beach, but you are not turned off when you have a business. And that's the disadvantage of having a business because when you work for someone and you work for the man you clock in at nine you clock out at five and you're done and if someone sends you an email at 501 you're answering that at 925 the next day right everyone's been there but when you have your own business and your own existence the clock doesn't stop and so that bleeds into sleep it bleeds into family time it bleeds into vacation time and the the hardest thing about it i think is that it's almost like living in a 
dual parallel universe that people don't understand like the physics of because most people have the nine to five day job, you know, and then they look at you and they're like, you're insane. Like you have a problem. You're a workaholic. You're addicted to like what you do. And it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm addicted to what I love to do. Sorry. You know? And uh, you know, um, I often make this analogy, like if your job, I paid you, if your job was to sit on a beach on a hammock and sip a martini, when would you want to stop doing that job? Never. But that's my job. Like staple to me is as fun as it is for you to sit on a beach. And so when you tell me stop doing staple, that's me telling you, hey, get off the hammock. Your job is done. It's like, no, please let me keep working. That's staple to me, you know. Um, but one of the hardest things is that not everyone gets that and making them understand it is honestly impossible. If, if the person you're having this conversation with has never started a business and has worked nine to five for all their life, they won't understand what you're talking about. And that is a lonely place to be. And so when it comes to friendships, loved ones, trying to find, you know, a loved one that you're, you're going to like, you know, spend the rest of your life with parents, grandparents, family members, brothers, sisters, you know, your brother has a kid and like, why aren't you spending time with like, you know, your nephew or niece? Like it's, it's tough up there. So that's one of the big sacrifices for sure. And you're right. That doesn't make for interesting Instagram content. So I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> so this one's from Maddie AO 118. Jeff, did you ever hit a point in your long career where you wanted to stop design and focus more on other projects? There was a point that nobody really knows this. There was a point five years into Staple where I wanted to stop the brand completely and stop the company. Um, and in, a, in any business school, you're going to learn that there's this thing called the five-year itch where I think actually the statistic is 90% of businesses that start up in the fifth year, they close. So only 10% of businesses make it past the fifth year. And I felt that five-year itch bad. Like I really wanted to quit and stop doing it because of just, I mean, really what it came down to, if I could like Monday morning quarterback it right now, is I was making less than I was earning and I was like feeding the fire like with everything I had and it was burning so hard and it was such a hungry beast to feed with employees and inventory and all this shit that like I was like, this is just not worth it. I'm not seeing the finish line on this and I wanted to stop. And it was actually, you know, I had a staff back then of like five people. And it was actually the five people that made me not stop, you know. Um, when I told them I wanted to stop, I sat them down and told them I wanted to stop. And they were just like, you can't stop. Like, you took us on this journey and now you got to get us to the finish line, you know. So I was like, fuck, okay, fine, you know. And thankfully, I I found the inspiration and reinvigorated myself to continue on to to you know the 20th plus year that we've been doing this now but that was the only one time that I wanted to quit um and to answer your question more specifically about like did I want to did I ever want to pivot and do something else I think if you sort of study the breadth of what I do um you'll see that staple has a lot of layers right there's clothing there's footwear there's client side there's media there's interviews there's talks there's academia you know and you'll find that what I do is when I do have something new that interests me, I figure out a way to layer it on top versus saying like, all right, I'm done with 
this clothing line that I've had for 20 years. I'm going to shift to doing podcasts. No, I'm going to figure out a way where the clothing line can continue, the shoe collabs can continue, and this podcast can continue. And hopefully do it in a way where the quality remains relatively the same, you know? Um, and that's, I say relative because obviously that's a subjective thing, but I, I hope that I can stand behind everything that I'm producing and be proud of it, you know, and bring on the people like Dan sitting in this room to be like, all right, I can't do this myself. I can't have this clothing line design studio, sneaker business, podcasting, but you, Dan, are an expert at this side of the, of, of the world. I need your help in this. And so it makes that layering process possible. And I will just sort of add to that, that I think that as a creative, you know, you talk about the one time in which you thought about uh, throwing in the towel and you talk about the multi-dimensional sort of approach of what it is that you do. I think that good creatives are constantly evolving and incorporating new ideas into their business, trying new things and experimenting so that it's harder to keep something going that's just one note. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, you being willing to evolve and doing, having your hand in so many different things is what probably keeps it interesting for all of those years and makes it so that there was really only one time that you thought about, maybe I don't want to do this anymore, you know? Yeah. All right, let's do a little speed round. What do you think? Lightning round? Yeah. yeah. All right. Lightning, you call it, you say lightning round, I say speed <laughs> round. Um, okay. These are from our old friend Jackie Lee, 99. Yeah, Jackie Lee, 99, like, asked a lot of questions. So Jackie Lee went in. Jackie, you're lucky because all of your remaining questions are going to make up our lightning round. And I'm going to make it so that you only have 60 seconds for each of these answers. How do you feel about that? I'd feel good about that. I'm going to even try to answer them, like, in one sentence. Yeah. Should we start with? The Do You Believe Social Media Presence one? Yeah. Okay. Here we go. You ready? Jeff, do you believe social media presence such as Instagram is important for a brand? And if so, what advice do you have to achieve this as I oppose the follow for follow mentality and buying bots? Uh, Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. The answer is yes, Instagram is important for a brand today. And today is the important word because... When I started, printing postcards was the important way of promoting. Making stickers was important. Then MySpace was important. Facebook was important. Then Twitter was important. Then starting a blog was important. And now it's Instagram. And then it was Snapchat. And then it wasn't Snapchat. You know? And then it was Vine. And then it wasn't Vine. So I guarantee you, one day, it won't be Instagram. But you need to figure out how to communicate your brand through whatever platform is hot. Right now, it is Instagram. So do it. Um, and I would say be patient with the follow. Don't worry about the follow count. Don't buy followers. Start with a community and get like your 10 friends that are like local to you to talk about it um, and follow and then tell them to tell 10 friends and just grow it organically that way. All right. For a startup where money is scarce, do you think paying for advertising is important? No, absolutely not. Going back to the previous question, Instagram is free. Posting on Instagram is free. Yes, you can pay for Instagram posts nowadays, but don't do that. There's so many great ways to promote your brand for absolutely no dollars. Um, if, you, if, if money is scarce, you should bootstrap it and do it in an organic manner. 
And I also think spend that X amount of dollars, uh, keep it in your pocket, and force yourself to be more creative about how you advertise so yeah. you can stand apart from the crowd as opposed to being a sponsored, sponsored weird post, ad yeah. on Instagram. Cool. How much did you initially invest into the startup of Staple? I feel like we covered this, but how much did you and 10 other credit card companies invest into the startup of Staple? Uh, well, if you go back to the very beginning, my first ever Staple order was 12 t-shirts. I bought the 12 blank t-shirts on 14th Street and 5th Avenue um, for $2 each, you know, and then I printed them at school. So most of the supplies were, were free. And I sold those 12 and then turned it around and made 24 shirts and then sold those and made 36 shirts. And I kept doubling down like that. So um, I really didn't invest a whole lot into the startup. Going back to that credit card story, when I started to get bigger and bigger volume, I needed to take out credit card cash advances in order to pay for that. Um, and as I answered before, that got me into some trouble getting me into upwards of $180,000 in debt. Don't do that. Scary. <laughs> At what point did you file a business type, i.e. LLC, sole proprietorship, corporation, etc., for Staple? For example, right when you had the idea or when you sold a few and saw the potential? Okay. This is a, I know the answer to this question, but it's going to be hard to answer in 60 seconds. You but can do it. When you start out a business, you are automatically a sole proprietorship. Your social security number is your tax ID number. When you become an official business your tax ID number is separated from your social security number. And so your business basically has its own ID number. The, the number one reason why you want to do that is liability. If somebody buys one of your shirts and sets their kid on fire because of it, they will sue you. If they sue you, John Smith, they can take everything that John Smith owns. If they sue John Smith Clothing Line Company, Inc., they can only take that company. They can't touch you personally. So that's the biggest advantage of having a company. And when basically, when you get yourself to the point where if they are able to take everything away from you and that's really scary, that's when you should start a business and, and enter into either a corporation or an LLC. Now, which one you do, whether it's an LLC or a corporation, that you should talk to an accountant about. Just over 60 seconds. LLC, Limited Liability Corporation, is within the answer, so... It sort of tells you a little bit about what it is that you're getting yourself. And there's also two corporations. There's an S Corp and a C Corp. And someone who's really, the difference is taxation and the way the government taxes you, basically. Um, so that's, where you should, that's why you should talk to an accountant. And so much of that information is free online. So yeah. sniff around for a little bit, see what you can come up with. Um, when you came up with the name Staple, did you trademark it immediately? Okay, when I did Staple, I did the poor man's trademark. If anyone knows what this is, the poor man's trademark is you put your logo and your name in a FedEx envelope and FedEx it to yourself, and then you don't open the FedEx, okay? Apparently, this might be an urban myth, but apparently that may hold up in a court of law that like the FedEx shows the airway bill of when it was shipped and when it was received, and if the person who is suing you for infringement can't provide that same date or or you know earlier then you should be able to win so i did that in the beginning but after about two years is when i went and got the actual trademark filing in you know new york because i was from new york 
But when you trademark, you got to start in your state, then go to the country, then go to the world, which starts to get very expensive. And I only recently trademarked Staple for like the entire world, which costs around thirty-five dollars to $50,000 to trademark for the whole world. Important though. Yeah. Has your business experienced any years of loss? Fuck yeah. <laughs> so much loss, but you know. You got to keep going. The thing about fashion is that you're constantly investing into the next collection. So even if you've made money from season one, you're now taking that money and putting it into season two. And you're, you, know, you keep sort of like it's like a dog chasing its own tail. So it's hard to say when I actually started to make money. I mean, now we make money and there's actually enough that after we put in the money into the next season, there's actually leftover to like squirrel away. So that's a great thing. But I went through, I mean, you know, I told you Staples 21 years old. I would say the first 11 years of Staple was not profitable. It was just, we were making money, but the money was going into the next season and constantly going into the next season. So we weren't able to like squirrel away money for the first decade easily. <laughs> Extremely admirable. And for stupid. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> not stupid. I mean, like, you know, like you said, if, if you're going to work doing what it is that you love doing. Yeah. And I will say personally, as a business owner, the first five years of running my business and we were not losing money. We were, you know, breaking even and doing a little bit better than that. But um, I felt like it was an education for me. Yeah. And the fact that I wasn't losing money and just breaking even and being able to eat and survive in New York, I felt like I was being paid in education. Yeah. yeah. And what's the alternative? The alternative is you make six figures in something you hate. Right. So... I'll take the, I'll break even in something I love yeah. and hope it works out, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. What schooling, I feel like a lot of people know this one, but what schooling did you have to prepare for Staple? Um, so I went to uh, two years of journalism school at New York University. I dropped out, transferred over to Parsons School of Design. None of my credits transferred over. So I started basically from freshman year again at Parsons, um, took communication design, which is a glorified term for graphic design, basically, with a little bit more. Um, did two years of that, started Staple right out of Parsons School of Design, sold those first 12 t-shirts, uh, and then I quit school. And um, so I have no college degree, but four years of schooling. Um, and I've always said to myself that I'll go back, but I haven't gone back. But Parsons recently gave me an honorary degree, which is dope. Um, so I have something that I can show my mom and be proud of. <laughs> it's amazing how many people with successful businesses did not complete any college yeah. worth mentioning. That's the next question. Uh, well, <laughs> Jeff, do you believe schooling is needed to start a clothing brand? I think in any creative endeavor, it's less about the academics of what you learn in school. I think there's like some basic tools that you need to learn whether you know whatever craft you're in there's some basic foundational stuff that you need but after that it's like get out there and work and and learn and connect and network that's what it's really more so about in a creative endeavor um i'm not saying quit school but i'm saying like once you feel like you've gotten the tools and you're ready to you know jump the ship and go out there and fly do it because the school will always be there to take your tuition. You don't have to worry about not being able to come back to school. You know what I mean? Um, so get out there. And I think the best education is like working in the field that you actually want to be doing it in. Yeah. I mean, if I could do it all over again, I would have 
just tried to get an apprenticeship or an internship in film or just asked to volunteer You're right. film sets because I would have learned all the things that I wanted to know and I wouldn't have spent any money. What school did you go to? Uh, I did not go to school for filmmaking at all. I went to school for a year, uh, Nassau Community College. But you didn't graduate? Not, not even close. close. Okay. So I went to four years of school, pretty expensive schools, right? I probably between the two years of NYU and the two years of Parsons and the school supplies and all that shit, I probably spent like $150,000 in school. And I wish that I, instead of spending all that, I just took $150,000 and put it in a bank and said like, I'm going to start Staple now. Well, Tim Ferriss talks a lot about this. We're going over a minute on this, but it's okay. I think it's an important point, and I think it's the evolution of education, higher learning is, uh, you know, he took the money that he would have spent on school for himself and invested it into himself as a business instead. He didn't go to school either. He, I believe he just didn't go to graduate school. Okay. Um, and he figured at $60,000 a year, he was going to invest money into some companies that he believed in and into himself. Yeah. He ended up investing in a lot of super successful startups and it worked out for him and he made his money back instead of being in debt. Um, and my personal approach, you know, just throwing it into the mix was to pay for school as I went. So I went to a community college. I wasn't 100% certain what I wanted to do with myself from a career standpoint. I felt like I didn't want to be in debt for 10 years after, yeah. you know, after college. So, right. And nowadays with like online learning and like, you know, I'm a huge proponent of Skillshare, which is like this online platform. It's like $10 a class. It's like, you can learn, like I took typography in school you know, paid $20,000 for that semester to learn typography, I can learn typography now for $10 on my phone whenever I want. It's crazy. Yeah. Be resourceful. Don't be wasteful. Sorry, that was not lightning round at all, but it's okay, all let's go. Back to lightning round. Touching on the interview with Mike Cherman, have you ever faced a trademark infringement claim? And what advice do you have for a small brand facing a claim? Uh, yes, I've sued people for infringing on our trademark and we've been sued for infringing on other people's trademarks. So we used to, in the early days, we used to do these like Nike riff shirts, you know, like play on Nike swooshes and stuff. And we got sued by Nike while we were working with Nike. <laughs> um, my advice, there really is no shortcut around this. I don't advise you as a non-legal professional to start like debating points with a lawyer like that is not going to end well because at the end of the day a judge is what's going to determine your fate um you have to get a lawyer you know and hopefully you have a family friend that's willing to do it on the strength or um you have the wherewithal to hire a lawyer but you if you get yourself into some trouble you need a lawyer and if you want to get someone in trouble by you know suing someone you better have a good case there because the lawyer's going to want to get paid from that but uh, lawyers are a necessary evil in having a business, for sure. And that is true. And maybe this is the last one. As times have changed since you first began Staple, what, if any, changes would you make if you were to start it in the present day? Did we talk about this? Yeah, a little bit. I'd bring on partners, as I said. Like, I'd bring on someone that I trusted early on, you know. Uh, in hindsight, I'd say to myself, what am I weak at? What don't I like doing? Let me find someone that I trust that can handle that. Um, and I think, honestly, Staple would have grown twice as fast if I had done that. Here's my question. This will be the last question. Okay, you get a question, Dan. I've done all of this to earn one question. Um, what have you learned in making this podcast? 
What have you learned Ooh. from the process of doing this, embarking on this podcast? I think, first of all, I want to say, if you listen to these shows and you hear my genuine reaction at some of like the comments that some of our interviewees make, I'm learning a shit ton in every episode. And, I mean, in season one, if I can sort of have a follow-through thread of everything, you know, the, the obvious cliche thing is like, follow your passions, do what you love, and it'll all work out, right? Um, but I think... One of the biggest things that I've learned is that sacrifice is so important, you know, and a lot of people think like sacrifice is a defeat, but if you're actually doing what you love, that sacrifice is like a battle scar that you should wear as a source of pride, you know? Um, And if you listen to all my episodes, uh, you'll hear people going through their trials and tribulations. Um, Mike Sherman is a great one. Upscale Vandal is a great one. The shoe surgeon is a great one for those sort of like trial and tribulation stories. Um, but Me- yeah, Melody, yeah. Melody has a great story. Too, Melody Asani has a great story. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, don't let those sacrifices sort of act as defeatist moments for you to like have an excuse to quit. Actually, you know, turn those sacrifices in the positives, you know? Cool. Yeah. All right. So that is the AMA. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we are going to be back very soon with season two of the business of hype. I've been hearing you guys on social media saying you've been missing out on the new episodes. Uh, we're working hard on season two. We'll be back very soon. Um, again, encourage you to subscribe, tell a friend about the show, um, spread the word. The more people we get commenting and listening and downloading, um, the better we can make the show. So thank you so much. You can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Staple, go to the website, businessofhype.com email me questions at businessofhype.com this is jeff staple and you've been listening to the business of hype